Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What you know, did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six years. I'd say it to your face, I'll say it to you now. What are you doing down here, you're showing me, man. Longe na distância, unidos com o coração. Vai lá essa alegria, Cristiano. Vai lá essa alegria, Cristiano. Faltam três para os 90. Concentração. Rocky vai apitar. É um livro perigoso. Derreia nos pontos. Cristiano, ele vai, ele vai, ele vai, ele vai, ele vai, ele vai. Oh, love listening to that again. There was some pretty stiff competition from the likes of Hannes Halderson's penalty save on Leo Messi, Herving Lozano's winner for Mexico against Germany. But come on, come on. There's not even a shred of that. Beating that on. Oh, no one's beating that for a moment of the opening weekend of the World Cup. You're welcome, one and all, to Monday's Second Captain's World Cup podcast. Hi, Murph. Hello there, Owen. A lot was made afterwards about how confident Ronaldo looked. As he set himself to take the free kick, the deep breaths, the closed eyes, the daringly hitched up shorts, until people pointed out that was exactly how he prepared for his previous 44 freeze yeah. at World yeah. Cup. But what, what I remember thinking during the moments before he struck it wasn't so much the feeling that he's going to do it. You're hoping, you're always yeah. hoping when a player like that is taking a free kick. It was the feeling that I really, really want him to do it. Yeah. I really want this guy to bury the ball in the back of the net. Now, Cristiano Ronaldo is the most narcissistic man in football. He's also a very, very rich man who apparently doesn't like paying his fair share of taxes. Yeah. So on paper, not a guy I'd root for ordinarily. Yeah. And yet you really... Well, I can only speak for myself. No, I can't actually. I can speak for most of the world. Yeah, I think you can. And say that we all wanted him to do it. Yeah, I know. I I know. It's like our desire to see something... See a holy shit moment overrides (laughs) any sort of moral question that we may have in our head. Oh, yeah. But I mean, like that's the World Cup, isn't it? I mean, it weren't yeah. even. It was. It was the only questions about the uh, the whole story of him getting the suspended jail sentence and the massive fine and all that was. Yeah. Oh, Jesus! Sneaky Spanish authorities landing that one on his doorstep on the day of a World Cup. Not maybe he should have yeah. paid his tax in the first place, and he wouldn't have been in this mess. But it was just. It's ah, look. It's the way he owns his narcissism. You know, he's yeah. not. He's he, he is what he is. You can like him or loathe him. 
Yeah, um, but I mean, but it as you say, that didn't matter when he was stepping up to take that no. free kick, whether you loved him or loathed him. He was still like, well, what's the coolest thing that could happen right now is stick this top bins. It's one of those com- one of those moments that. I don't know if you found this over the weekend. I, don't know, I haven't asked what you've been doing with your weekend, Murph, but I've found... <laughs> I do, I do, hazard a wild <laughs> guess. Yeah, yeah. When you've stepped out of your World Cup bubble, though, even when I've stepped yeah. out of it, I've talked to people who wouldn't ordinarily be in it. Family yeah. members, of course. friends, well, that's and what, stuff like this. That's the fun part. That's the fun. Yeah, you, you get out of your bubble for a couple of minutes. You ask, is anyone watching this? And they go, yeah, well, that Ronaldo guy is incredible. And you go, yeah. thanks. And then you yeah. get back into your bubble again. You just want some affirmation yeah. from the outside world that this is actually a big deal. And this is penetrating. Uh, somewhere else yeah don't so worry about that all. I think it's fair to say it's Ronaldo reached maximum uh, news penetration over the weekend we've had a phenomenal response to these World Cup podcasts so thank you to everybody who has signed up to the World Service to hear them loads more great stuff on the way right through the week this week starting tomorrow when Richie's going to be in to help us dissect England's opening game that's on tonight and right now we're off to Volgograd I believe <laughs> 2018 World Cup in Russia will be up to the highest standards. Soccer is popular. From bottom of my heart, thank you. Maradona turns like a little eel and comes away from trouble. The little squat man leaves it for dead. There's Beckham, there's Balan, there's Beckham, there's Beckham. Right, Ken, you're in Volgograd there. Welcome to Volgograd, uh, Owen. Uh, Gerard, how are you doing? Good, we're good. We're good. good. Uh, it's well, nice of you to check in, you know. I'm doing very well. Yeah. I'm doing very, very well. How did uh, presidential time go on uh, Saturday? Uh, well, I mean, so I woke up on Saturday morning, and within about, within about 30 seconds of my eyes opening, just... What started playing in my head was, welcome to Miami, benvenido a Miami. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I'm so looking forward to this day. Got up, threw up in the curtains, and I'm like, what's, what's happened here? What has happened? It's like this gray, steely sky. It wasn't even that warm. I thought, no, no, I've been robbed. Uh, it, was, it, was pretty, it was pretty tough to take. I'm not going to lie to you. And I then, uh, I then thought, all right, okay, well, look. I'm sure that cloud cover will burn off. There's no doubt. I'm in Sochi. Uh, that's what's going to happen. Or rather, I'm in Adler. I'm, I'm 25 kilometers down the coast from Sochi. Now it's time to go to Sochi. How do I make that 25-kilometer journey? Could get a taxi, sure. Hmm. Could um, get a train. Oh, but the tra- for the train, I'll have to go back to the Olympic Stadium, which is kind of three or four kilometers that way, just to get to the train station. But there is a bus just uh, around the corner. Why don't I get the bus? The bus was a bad choice. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was standing on that bus for almost two hours. All right, Ken, I, I feel like we almost need to backtrack uh, to have a ba- uh, the Kirby enthusiasm backing track ready to go here. What happened on the bus? Well, nothing happened apart from me standing on the bus for two hours of, of sweet sweet presidential time as it slipped <laughs> as it slipped by, uh, inclu- including the first half of the of the France Australia game. Uh, which I had expected to to arrive in Sochi in time for, but instead I was I was standing on this bus, sweating and and complaining, in in uh, internally. If so, it, uh, if if you could have chosen a a half of football to miss, the first half of France Australia was not exactly a classic. So you know, it it could have been worse, Ken. It could have been worse. 
yeah, I worked out okay. But, you know, once I got there, um, had a bit of a walk around and uh, yeah, watched, a bit of, watched a bit of football, watched the Argentina-Iceland, um, which, was, which was very interesting. Um, met some, uh, met Emmett Malone of the Irish Times, who had been touring Stalin's Dasha. Wow. Um, uh, which is, which is just, uh, in the area. And, uh, he had met, uh, he had met some Russian, a uh, group, a mixed group of Russians and Americans. Um, so we sat watching, watching the game. And then obviously these people being Americans, they're, they're like, Oh, vodka, we have to have, we have to have shots now. You can't just have a beer. Um, and before you know it, uh, before you know it, they were challenging people to press up contests. Um, the, there was a, a Russian, a Russian man with them who, who enthusiastic, like I'd say, you know, fifty-ish Russian man who enthusiastically, he was straight down trying to do the one-handed press-ups. Uh, although I have to say, I wouldn't try to do a one-handed press-up unless I was pretty sure I could pull it off, and he couldn't. So it was like I don't, I don't really know what you tried to achieve there. But uh, that was, that was, that was just the way it went. It was. Um, it was just one of those uh, one of those evenings, and I can confirm to you that the sun did eventually come out and shine very brightly on that uh, wonderful evening in Sochi. Well, back to work in Volgograd, formerly Stalingrad, Ken. I saw mm. a, a, a package on this last night on this very interesting city. Seems to physically, it's dominated by this massive statue, the Motherland Calls. The Motherland Calls, eighty-five meters. Um, the motherland is there uh, with a raised with a sword raised uh, above her head, um, sort of turning as though to beckon beckon on the uh, the, the Soviet uh, ranks behind her uh, to plunge upon, uh, down upon the foe. Uh, pretty amazing. It's 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 right beside the stadium, so it's kind of it's it's overlooking the stadium. It's on this big uh, hill. There's a big memorial complex there. But the whole city is like a memorial. I mean, how does a city? How does a city kind of? recover from something like that um you know, how do you kind of put that how do you sort of move on from that and the, the answer is i don't think you really can uh i mean especially as the city itself is kind of uh, so much of it has actually been turned into a memorial to the battle of stalingrad i mean they've, they've obviously got a huge museum which i've yet to see i mean i'm, I'm obviously going to go to the museum um, I'm, i mean i hesitate to say that i'm exactly like mark corrigan from peep show but it's not too, it's not too far off uh so i will definitely go to the battle of sangrad museum but yesterday i walked all around it and walked sort of around the lenin square and saw all of these old memorials i mean they've got like <clears throat> all you know lots of old weapons fighter planes tanks um you know boats river uh, river boats um, they've got like uh, statues everywhere. Lenin, Zhukov, you know, it's like mm, no Stalins. Didn't see any Stalins. I mean, obviously the name of the city has changed when Stalin was discredited in the 1950s. They still have a quote of his on the. Um, they still have a quote of his on, on the sort of in inscription outside the outside the museum, but I didn't actually see any evidence of him. But yeah, it is. It's a kind of an amazing place, but it it, it is an, a, a kind of a it, it is saturated with the history of that time um, to the extent that it really I think has dominated everything ever since. I mean, even though the city is now has, now has a different name, um, it's still very much Stalingrad. If you walk around, you can't uh, you can't go more than five minutes without seeing another monument or memorial or reminder. You know, a tank turret on a on a pillar or. Um, Something along these lines to uh, to remind you that um, 
there was one of the greatest battles in history here. Even Gareth Southgate and Harry Kane were asked about it. Did they say much in response? Southgate said, "When you see uh, when you see the statues and know about the history, it reminds you that some things are uh, bigger than football." And Harry Kane said, "The history, it is what it is." <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's huge there's huge respect. Some some of us would like to go to the museums and so on if we have time, which they won't. They'll be out of here immediately after the game. But um, you know, it is what it is. I mean, what what are you supposed to say, like? <laughs> What's Harry Kane supposed to say about the Battle of Stalingrad on the eve of England versus Tunisia? Particularly, he... Kane. Yeah, particularly when Harry Kane and Gareth Southgate are putting across this Pat Sharp's Funhouse vibe coming out mm. of the England camp. Players playing darts with journalists, all this kind of stuff, which is great to see, I must say, because I watched a BBC programme last night called The Impossible Job. It was a documentary about the England manager's job. With yeah. uh, with interviews with a bunch of the interesting, interesting actually, Glenn Hoddle didn't appear as an interviewee. Mm. Mm, maybe he didn't want to rake up some of the. What, cha- what channel stuff. was it? On? It was a BBC BBC documentary last night. It was very good. They had you know Sven, who was excellent actually. Fabio Capello, who was just so dismissive of everything to do with all the excuses that English people make at tournaments. But an interesting one was Roy Hodgson. Roy Hodgson says we haven't found a way of helping our players come to terms with the incarceration that being part of a major tournament brings with it. He actually used the term incarceration to describe a bunch of professional footballers in camp for a World in Cup. beautiful hotel. Very different vibe, it seems, uh, that Gareth Southgate is putting out there. Well, it's an interesting choice of words. Um, I, I, I can't imagine that is really as much of a factor as it used to be, given that all the players are just on their phones all the time anyway. I mean, you know, what's, the, what's the difference between being in like a hotel in Rapino, north of St. Petersburg, and being like at home, I mean, you're still doing this. You're still staring at the same few square inches of glass. Like, I mean, that's <laughs> there's no difference. I mean, Roy Hodgson obviously is from a, a different time uh, when you had to get to make your own fun. I mean, if you didn't have a, a hoop and stick um, or, or some some similar recreational uh, device, um, you know, what what could you do? You're climbing up the walls. Whereas these guys, I mean, they're playing computer games against each other. They're you know. Looking at Instagram, I mean, I, I, is boredom really that much of a factor for this generation of um, of players? I mean, if to be honest, dealing with dealing with incarceration is a, or not being able to deal with so called incarceration is a stupid reason to fail at a football yeah, tournament. Yeah. Somehow, it's not one that seems to affect all the teams that do actually win these tournaments, and uh, I have no sympathy. For them, if that's the case, I think Roy Roy might have been looking for excuses. And anyway, I, I dispute whether it's um, incarceration these days is quite what it was in the good old days when um, it was just you um, uh, and the four walls. More on England a little bit later on, but right now it's Kennedy's report from Sochi. Well, Ken, after your horrendous two-hour journey up there, you attended one of the great World Cup occasions. How was Spain Portugal for you? Oh. Uh, that was amazing. Well, that was before my my horrendous two-hour journey. Oh, that my was on, my that was, on, yeah. that was on Friday. That was on the Friday night. It was amazing. Uh, I mean, I was really looking forward to the game. There's all these matchups: Ronaldo against Ramos, Diego Costa against Pepe. Um, so much going on. I mean, and, and also the fact that can you know can Ronaldo drag his team through against an obviously much superior Spanish team? And you know, then there's then there's the whole question hanging over Spain. Uh, uh, which is, you know, is the president of the FA, Luis Rubiales, a genius? 
or an idiot. Uh, only the scoreboard can uh, can decide. Only the scoreboard can pronounce his fate. If Spain get a positive result, then sacking the manager, Lopetegui, was a great idea. And if they don't get a positive result, then I'm afraid Ruby Allies uh, looks, like, uh, looks like a complete clown. Uh, so there was all of these sort of uh, subplots uh, going into the game, which Ronaldo then took control of it in three minutes. I mean, the you know, scores a penalty after three minutes, wins the penalty, bullies poor uh, Nacho, great skill, great... I mean, what I was impressed by with Ronaldo was the speed. You know, he didn't move a, a lot, but when he did, it was a top speed. Um, you know, he looked really, really sharp, really fit. I mean, more so certainly than in the last World Cup, uh, you know, even more so than in the Euros, I think. Uh, I mean, he, he was effective in the in the Euros. But, you know, we've seen Ronaldo a lot of the times arrive at this end of the season. Uh, 2014, this is certainly the case where he's looking a bit sluggish, looking a bit tired. Not this time. Uh, he, he's absolutely electric. I, mean, I don't know how he does it. You know, 33 years old, you'd expect most players to have started to, to uh, drop off a little bit, and it's just not happening. It's just not happening with Ronaldo. Um, Spain then bullied their way back into the game with a traditional um, long ball forward and uh, centre forward smashes a guy in the in the face and uh, bullies his way past a couple of defenders and slams it in. Then Ronaldo obviously scores again. Uh, <laughs> oh my god! Uh, I mean, what can you say about that? I mean, I, I would I would say that 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 was in a way that the most freakish. I mean, it was obviously freakish because of De Gea, De Gea's mistake. But just look at the way that Ronaldo manages to get the chance. Because after the goal, I was I was sitting there like flabbergasted going, how did he get that chance? I don't understand how he ended up with all this space and time in the edge of the box to shoot. Okay, De Gea still should have saved it. Although it's a, he manages to get a good shot off in his left foot. The question is, why is nobody trying to stop him? And just to see how he gets on the ball in that move was... Well, it, it kind of showed that what Spain were up against. It's like, this is just not normal. There's something... It's like there's some. It's like a deal with the devil. It looks like you're watching a deal with the devil play out. Ronaldo is standing way offside. He so so Ramos kind of leaves him. There's no point in marking him. He, he can't mark him. He's he's too far back. But manages to somehow get the ball just at the moment that the defenders move back. There's like a long ball forward. It goes to Guedes. The defenders are sort of retreating. Ronaldo steps up a little bit, and just as they play him onside, the ball is played to him, and Ramos is nowhere near him. Can't get a challenge in. And it's a goal. And it's like, like you know, I, it's just amazing to see. Like, remember we were talking about his movement for the bicycle kick against Juventus. Yeah. How he just sort of went to exactly the right spot as though, you know, he, as though he knew, which he couldn't have known, where the ball was going to go. That's it, it. Like, it happened again. I mean, it just keeps happening. It's freakish. It's, it's unbelievable to watch. Yeah. And then the free kick. Well, the free kick. I mean, well, first of all, you got to, got to mention Spain. Uh, Spain bullied their way back into the game, uh, chip into the box, uh, big lad at the back stick, knocks it down uh, and and, uh, and slammed into the net from close range by their burly centre forward. <laughs> and then uh, and then it's uh, a long range, a long range shot. Put a bit of welly on it from the right back, and uh, so Spain are, are now in control with their rudimentary the with a rudimentary football approach. I yeah. like how yeah. impressed you said by Spain here. Love it, and uh, and then Ronaldo. Okay, the free kick, and you and you're actually going. You know, look at this free kick. This is definitely scorable distance. I mean, you know, he couldn't possibly. He's not going to score this, is he? Like, he can't. This would just be too much. It's it's like too perfect. 
you know, he, he scores a hat-trick at this point. It's like, it's it's even for him, this is too much. And then he does. But the, the weird thing is that he took a completely uncharacteristic free kick. It's like, what happened to your, what happened to your um, blasting it, kicking the ball as hard as you can approach that you've been using for some reason for ever since you scored that free kick against Portsmouth in, was it, 2006? <laughs> you know the one, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's like almost every free kick he's taken since then, he's tried to do that. And like, it very, very seldom succeeds. It's like, you know, you sometimes see this. Roberto Carlos fell in love with a particular way of taking a free kick and, and continued to take it, to continue to take the free kicks like that, even though it was obvious that it was a really inefficient way to take a free kick. In this, in this case, Ronaldo takes a, a curling, chipping free kick. Uh, and you think, you could have scored another 40 goals if you'd, <laughs> if you'd, um, if you'd, decided to vary your approach a little bit like this in, in your career. But, you know, at least you've, you've picked a good moment to spring the surprise on everybody. I mean, it was just, it was absolutely just, what, what can you say? What can you say about that? Well, yes. you can, well, what, you, what, what you can say is tell me how you reacted to it, because what struck me afterwards was watching the, even the grizzled football men, like Liam Brady cracked a smile, for example. Alan Shearer was grinning and applauding. Like literally, he was grinning and chuckling and starts applauding like a child. This is after the game. It's not one of those shots that they show, which annoy yeah. me actually, of the commentators during the match. After the, he's chuckling and, and applauding to himself after the game. How did Ken Erdy, grizzled football journalist, react? Just like laughter and boggle-eyed astonishment. I mean, how can you? What, what, it's just amazing. What you know? What a what a match to have seen. What 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 a thing to have to have to have been there to witness. You know, it was just it was it was great. I mean, it was just. Yeah, you know, but when was the last time you, somebody did that in World Cup? I mean, you're sort of struggling to to actually remember an individual performance as as uh, as fantastic as that. And in a weird way, like it, it's so minimalist. I mean, this is the kind of the thing that he's started to do in recent years. Is just this, um, you know, extreme efficiency of of. Uh, maybe not involved that much. I mean, he couldn't really be involved that much again, although he was actually quite good. When, you know, whenever he was on the ball, I mean, he very rarely gave it away. He played yeah. lots of nice passes. I mean, he scored three goals from two and a half chances, uh, which is which is a pretty good strike rate. Um, he had he also laid on what should have been a simple goal for Gredes. He had a terrible game. I mean, yeah. he had such yeah. a poor game alongside Ronaldo. Um, but it was just... It was amazing. I mean, it was kind of a good feeling after the game as well, because even the Spanish team, even the Spanish fans were like, yeah, that was pretty good. I mean, you know, I can't really, can't really argue with that. Like, and at least we didn't lose. So I think everyone was sort of happy. I mean, it was a, it was just a great, uh, it was a great game, a great occasion. Hardly any, t you know, Argentina, Brazil, Germany, Spain, none of them won on the opening weekend. And France were France two were video the, referrals to win. So. Outstanding. <laughs> Is there an argument that Portugal are in the hunt in this one, Ken? They're European champions, they have Cristiano Ronaldo, and yet nobody really was talking about them beforehand. 100%. Yeah. 100%. I mean, you know, if they, they've got Ronaldo, it means they can score uh, at, at any moment, really, in the game. And uh, the rest of their team is, is decent enough. I mean, they've got quite a solid team and they've got some good footballers i mean bernardo silva is a brilliant player you know joan Matinho is, is a classy player in midfield they do have plenty of like they're they're a competent and well-organized team who have an outstanding goal scorer so yeah i mean that sounds like a potentially world cup winning formula to me i mean you you got to see what kind of effect attrition has i mean it's, it's, the reason why the world cup is, is 
has been different from the European Championships. And the European Championships has had a couple of surprise winners. Um, Denmark, most obviously. Um, but, you know, you, you could say Portugal were surprised were surprise winners as well. last time. But the, the difference is the World Cup is longer. And players get ruled out along the way. Suspensions, injuries. And the smaller country you are, the smaller it is to cope with that. And the World Cup has only really been run, won by big countries. Where, you know, if you leave aside Uruguay, who, who last won it in 1950, it's always countries with, you know, lots of talent, deep squads. Um, Portugal are smaller than any of the countries to have won it since Uruguay. Um, you know, so it would be it would be unexpected. But, you know, if they were to be lucky, then, yeah, I, I, I don't see any reason why not. Well, what about the rest of the weekend there, Ken? I mentioned some of the big guns underperforming. We're going to talk to Tim Vickery in a little while about Brazil and Argentina. So might as well ask you about Germany, world champions. Oh. Maybe not for much longer. <laughs> Yeah, um, they don't look great, do they? And, you know, watching them, there was a kind of a bit of a trend in that a couple of teams I saw were really getting cut up really badly on the counter-attack, as though they they hadn't thought at all about what they're going to do when they lose the ball in an attacking position. And the three teams that this was happening to were Saudi Arabia, obviously, Spain, which was a bit more surprising, at least for the first half hour, uh, against Portugal, they, they they sort of reminded me of Saudi Arabia, and then Saudi Arabia clones Germany. Um, I mean, what the hell were they doing? You know, th- this was okay. When you look at Germany's team, okay, this, it's it's a it's a strong team, it's experienced. A lot of these guys have actually won the World Cup. But when you look at the central midfield, they've got Tony Kroos, who is you know an, an absolute one of the best players at the World Cup. But alongside him, I mean, if Tony if Tony Kroos has won. One shortcoming in this game—it's not even really a shortcoming. But if you could, if you could like put him into like a you know a, a simulator and enhance some of his abilities, you'd probably make him a little bit faster. I mean, it wouldn't hurt. It wouldn't hurt just to be a little bit more mobile. The way that he plays, it's not like he's he's racing around the pitch anyway. He's a stately kind of player. You know, he 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 moves into space and he he's got time to pick his passes. But yeah, you, ideally he could he could maybe run around a bit more. So ideally, you would, given that you can't really in, in real life do that. You would have someone who, who was a bit more mobile alongside them. I mean, the perfect player would be somebody like N'Golo Kante. I mean, N'Golo Kante is you know outstanding in this position. He's so mobile. You, you know, he could cover these gaps. Uh, he could he could really help to win the ball back across. Who do Germany have? Kadira, right? Kadira is a kind of a big trundling player who I think was already a little bit past his best when they won the World Cup four years ago. And so, what this creates is a situation where. In midfield, there's not really a lot of covering pace. If they do lose the ball, and the way that Thomas Muller particularly is playing, um, that happens quite a lot, then they get exposed. I mean, even Matt, hum- Matt Hummels was saying it after the game. Matt Hummels took the quite strange step um, you know, of, of immediately in a post-match interview criticising the tactics. And whether he's criticising uh, Joachim Love or whether he's criticising... Um, the players uh, for not doing their jobs is, is, is hard to say. I mean, he says, uh, he, he basically said, we played like we did against Saudi Arabia, like Germany had a friend against Saudi Arabia, but now uh, we were playing against a stronger team and they've won and they deserve to win. But if seven or eight players are attacking all the time, it's obvious uh, that you've got no defensive stability. Uh, so Boateng and I were alone in the back and we were just counterattacked all, all day. So I don't know who that message is intended for. Possibly everybody apart from himself Boateng and maybe Manuel Neuer, but there was there was such a lack of of, of balance uh, in Germany's team. 
Like this was not apparent at all in 2014. I mean, there was a statistic going around. They've already been behind for longer than they were in the entirety of the 2014 World Cup. I mean, they were down for eight minutes in that World Cup. That was all against Ghana, I think, in the in the group stage. And they didn't trail it any other time because they just didn't give away cheap opportunities or cheap goals. But against Mexico, Mexico could have beaten them 4-0 if they'd been uh, more ruthless in their finishing. I mean, Mexico were fantastic. I mean, it was great. It was, it was great to see. Like, I mean, this is when you see a game like that, you're you're like, okay. When you see the reactions of everybody, yeah, it's like this is why this is this is why this is the biggest deal. You know, this is, even you know when you're watching France against Australia, just watching the Australians, like you see the Australian bench and the fans, like in the last few minutes as they're looking for the equalizer, just the desperation. Please, 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 get a goal. Just to see the kind of emotions that people invest in this. That's why this is the biggest tournament, even if the standard of football is, you know, variable. I mean, but it's not really about the standard of football. It's, it's never really about that. It's about how much people care. And people, when you saw the Mexicans yesterday and the joy that they were taking out of this, I mean, one of their greatest ever results uh, in World Cup history. I mean, there's still plenty of time for them to break all the hearts of, of all their supporters. And no doubt we'll, we're going to see plenty of Mexican tears at some point over the next few weeks. But, you know, what an amazing day. What an amazing result for them yesterday. Yeah, and just another word on, uh, obviously Mexico deserve all the praise, but just another word on Germany. When you look at the results since qualifying, I know these are friendly games, right? But you sh- should be winning one or two of them. They've they've played one, two, three, four, six, seven games now since they qualified. They've only won one, and that was against Saudi Arabia, in which they played pretty poorly. Now, I saw a strange analysis of this before the match on the BBC, where they were praising Germany for ha- having this sort of patience whereby Yogi Love can experiment before major tournaments and they can lose all their games or draw them and it doesn't really matter. I kind of thought, that's a bit strange that they're, that they're not getting results and that they feel the need to experiment. I mean, he's been in the job about 50 years. Like, they should know what they're doing coming into a major tournament like this and it looked like they, they really didn't have a plan for Mexico's counterattack. Yeah, um, and you know that's a that's a tactical it's a tactical failure. I mean, whether he changes the personnel or the system, uh, I mean, it's 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 obviously something that happens to you or that you're vulnerable to if you are a team that wants to keep possession of the ball and play high up the pitch. I mean, this is this is what Germany did, it's what Spain do, and it's also what Saudi Arabia tried to do. It does leave you in that position, vulnerable to a quick opponent who sits back and tries to then go vertical, uh, and you're supposed to have a plan in place for that. I mean, I'm kind of reminded of, of the way that, you know, uh, Jurgen Klopp dealt with this uh, sort of throughout the course of last season, where that was something happening a lot to Liverpool last season, the season before last and the beginning of this season. But he, he managed, to, he found a way to tighten it up. By the end of the season, they weren't giving these sorts of chances away. It's about the positioning of your midfielders, the positioning of your fullbacks, depending on where the ball is on the field. You can't be as reckless, really, as Germany were and expect to get away with it. I mean, they might have got away with it. Mexico might have missed the chance that they ultimately scored as well. But, you know, you've got to expect that if you give up cheap chances, you're going to cough up uh, goals as well. Uh, I mean, Joachim Love is, you know, he has been there for, in my opinion, too long. I mean, we were, we were talking about this before the tournament. I mean, I don't understand why he didn't leave after they won the World Cup. I mean, what, what more can you do? I mean, you just won the World Cup. I suppose his answer is, well, I want to win it again. I want to win the Euros as well. But like, yeah, and I, I, I suppose when, you, when you've got a World Cup winning coach, it is sort of up to him what he wants to do. You know, it's not like you're going to turn around to the Federation and say, no, you're out, Yogi, because he can point to a record of success, you know, a consistent record of semifinals and, and, and finals 
with Germany. If you're being really critical, you might argue that this generation of German players should have won even more than they have, or should have played in more finals, certainly, than they than they have. I mean, they got to the Euro 2008 final, and the, obviously the 2014 final. Um, you could even, you could, th there is a critical way to look at, at Love's time as well, and say that he's actually not done enough. But really, realistically, you win the World Cup, you kind of then get to dictate terms. Um, he obviously feels that he just likes the job and wants to keep going. But you, you, get a, you, you get into a problem. We saw it with Spain at the last World Cup, where if you've had a team that has had so much success, these players are, are kept in the team because of their past success rather than because of their current form. I think you could say that about Kedira. I think to a certain extent it may, it may be true of Thomas Muller. Uh, Thomas Muller has scored 10 World Cup goals. You know, you can't leave out a player who scored 10 World Cup goals, can you? I mean, you can, and maybe you should if he's in this type of form. But realistically, you're going to play that guy. Uh, and if he doesn't if he doesn't produce as he did in the past, okay. And, and who's the other player who they're missing? It's Miroslav Klose. I mean, Miroslav Klose is a player who scored tons of goals for them in the World Cup, 15 uh, altogether. Um, you know, really good, particularly on crosses. Uh, knock it in there. Klose will be in the right place at the right time. They don't really have that. At the moment, I mean, they're, they're playing the centre forward uh, was Timo Werner, who's an excellent player, but he's kind of more of a of, a, of an all action, you know, hard running, like forward player who can, you know, who can who can run the channels and bring others into play rather than a sort of a, a goal scorer the way that Closer was. So they're they're kind of a little bit blunt, giving up chances at the back, not really ruthless when it comes to their own chances. And obviously, everybody is psyched to play against them because they're the world champions. Yeah. yeah. And then there's this whole other thing going on with, with Gundogan and, uh, and Ozil, you know, which, which has kind of been, been quite controversial. I mean, we had an email about that uh, from a listener. Remember, we were talking about it last week. I was saying, I'm not sure why, why the reaction to this was so bad. And he kind of filled us in on a few of the... Um, the, the this is the two players posing for, or was it posing for a picture for, with Erdogan or certainly supporting him in some way? Posing for a picture with Erdogan yeah. and, and uh, also presenting him, in the case of Gundogan, presenting him with a shirt saying, to my president. Uh, and the, con the controversy is essentially around the fact that, yeah, Turks in Germany are allowed to vote in Turkish elections. They, they've got a different setup. I know there's lo lots of Irish people who live abroad are always complaining that they don't get a say uh, in Irish elections. Uh, and it's really unfair. Uh, I'm not sure about that. I think maybe if you, if you don't live in the country you shouldn't get a vote uh, about what happens in that country. You know, even if you've got the citizenship, um, it seems to me if you don't live there, well, what are you doing? Voting on issues that only affect people that live there. But anyway, Turkey has a different system. All those Turks in Germany are allowed to vote. But apparently the Turks in Germany are good to, or can be quite a lot more conservative than the ones in in Turkey. So they've kind of been very pro-Erdogan. He's been sort of firing them up. There have been a few little incidents like the two the two governments don't get along so this is why the germans kind of reacted badly to that it was kind of like well, what are you doing like i thought you were supposed to be german national team players what are you doing you know with this guy he's not a popular man in germany um you know how how much that's affected him i don't know i think i think the on-field stuff we were talking about is is more important but again you know ozil has been a key player for them um it, he's not always the, the the a player who reacts the best under pressure i don't think if he's not playing well, they lose a lot, and he didn't really play too well against Mexico. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, issues. I mean, they can still obviously go through. You, you know, they, they're still good enough to win their their two games. But you would have thought they were good enough to win the one uh, against Mexico mm. as well. That's it for Ken Early's World Cup Report on Sport. Is it a
say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. About 12. <laughs> Everyone in the city knew about him, but no one had seen him. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? No, really. What happened? What happened? It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade us of the world outside of that. That's why sports is important. Ken moves quickly around Russia. He's in Volgograd now, and after yesterday's England press conference, he caught up with two of our favourite voices in English football. I'm here with two members of Her Majesty's press corps, Jonathan Liu and Jack Pitbrook, both of the Independent. Jack, I understand uh, in uh, today's Independent, you're writing about the question of whether England are actually any good. What have you concluded? Uh, I've concluded that I've got no idea. Like, I don't... I just don't know. I mean, usually with tournaments, certainly under Capello and Hodgson, maybe not Euro 2012 because Hodgson just started, we went in with an idea of how England would play. And we we know what Southgate wants to do, but I've got no idea at all if they can actually do it. Like, the data set's so small. We had You can't really read anything into qualifiers. And then we've had the friendlies where England played pretty well against quite strong teams. But, like, the difference between that and an actual World Cup game is huge. Mm. And it also speaks to the fact we don't really know anything about Southgate. Like, his, his CV is so limited, you know, spell at Middlesbrough, spell the under-21s, that we don't, again, we don't know how he will be, whether or not he'll be able to get the England team to play in the way that he wants them to play. Well, we got some sense of what Southgate is like, Jonathan. You've had a, a few personal interactions with him. I mean, he's uh, got some sense of what he's like as a man and as a, as a coach, surely. Yeah, I, I approached him quite drunkenly at the Football Writers Awards uh, a few weeks ago, and I thought I'd blurt it out there. We'll give you a semi-final. No, we'll give you a quarter-final. You can have the quarter-finals. We'll, we'll, we'll get off your back. And, and I, I think he just sort of... How do you mean you, we'll give you a semi-final? I mean, what does that even mean? I, I mean, what does, what does anybody even mean? Um, I, I, don't, I suppose I was, I was trying to say that that, that's, that, was, that would be his kind of base camp. And mm-hmm. if, he got, if he got us to the quarter-finals, then... Uh, then we, as as in Her Majesty's press, would yeah. would give him a, a fairly easy ride. I think we, you know, we know. I think what the average level of this of this England team is. I think we know what their ceiling is, uh, which is obviously not not as high as the ceilings of a lot of other teams. But uh, what we don't quite know yet is how bad they could be. Yeah. We don't we don't know what Southgate's England are going to be like on a bad day, and maybe we won't find out. But um, it, it's it, England at a tournament. There's always an idea, and it's. Um, well, it, it, it's going to be interesting to see what that Nadir consists of, whether it was a mental meltdown or whatever. Well, he, he did. He talked a lot about perceptions in the press conference. I mean, of, of fans, of, of, of English perceptions of Russia, of, of the world's perceptions of England fans, and also of the world's perceptions of English footballers. And he kind of set out this position that he thinks these players are different and this is going to be different they can show people something new but why, why do you think he thinks that? What's the basis for thinking that? I think the basis is he has this kind of confidence and trust in this generation of young England players he's been very I think he's been quite keen to get rid of lots of the older players who are a bit less popular Rooney, Hart, Wilshire maybe um, so he can build around you know Lingard, Ali, Kane all the rest of them um, I think it's It'd be, it'd be interesting to see if they can deliver the style of football that he wants them to play. I think he's very confident that by letting these those guys express themselves on the pitch, suddenly England will be playing like good, attractive, expansive football. 
but the evidence of international football is that it's not really that easy mm-hmm. and in fact the best way to get results from your players is to play to go the other direction is to play the kind of like defensive two banks of four football that has seen all sorts of teams you know do better than they should Iceland Portugal Iran Greece like mm. it's much easier it's much easier to overperform with defensive football than with attacking football and I don't, I'm not sure England have got the ingredients in terms of like players who know each other's games and a manager who's very good at his who's very good at his job to get them to play the kind of attacking football Southgate wants them to play yeah. well we can we can talk uh, maybe a bit more about what what kind of football England are trying to play and what what they're trying to do with their with their team but Jonathan you, you, you mentioned there's always a Nadir I mean the last tournament game England played was against Iceland and I mean what was incredible about it I mean Iceland are a good team Iceland have, have, have got good results against arguably better teams than England but what was really amazing about it was that the disastrous performances of of very good England players. So I'm not talking only about Rooney who, who, was, who, who was often bad in tournaments but Harry Kane in that game had I, I've never seen him play worse so I don't understand how it is. I mean, you're somebody who has to write about this stuff uh, on a fairly frequent basis, writing about England. Have you come to any conclusions about what, how can it be that a player like Harry Kane, who is a, a world-class player, can have such a meltdown? Uh, what, what's, what's happening in his, in his brain? Well, I think, specifically in the case of Kane and, and players like, like Dyer and, and Deli Alley and, and, and Danny Rose, the, the Tottenham players in that squad, and I think they were five or six, um, were just so mentally shattered after the way their season ended. I mean, mm. if you remember, they, they lost the title to Leicester and then collapsed at the end of the season. I think there was a huge amount of mental fatigue there. You could you could tell they were they were sort of running on empty. And, and the funny thing is that this team is is pretty much the same. I mean, that Iceland team, it was Sterling, it was it was Rashford, it was Deli Ali. It's you know the personnel haven't haven't really changed, which is which is why there's there's still I guess going to be that nagging doubt. I mean, every tournament we come to. Uh, you know, we come in with this sense of renewal. Oh, it's the youngest. It's a young side. They're, they're unscarred, but this this lot are scarred. Yeah. So it's it, like even Sterling. Someone like Sterling has already been through two of these disasters. Yeah, and uh, we, we that that's the big unknown for me. I, you know, we, we know we know how good they are um, when it comes to well, assuming they get to knockout football. We don't know what whether you know the weight of the shirt and the pressure of the occasion and and, and obviously penalties as well. We don't know how that's going to affect them, and that's why I still just about on balance think that England will lose to the first good team they come up against. Um, well, uh, Southgate also said today that he has told the players what the team is. Do you do you know what the team is? Yeah, I think it's going to be Pickford, Walker, Stones, Maguire, uh, Trippier, and Young as the wing backs. Henderson, Lingard, and Ali in midfield. Sterling and Kane up front. So, so it's it's kind of positive in that. It's it's not Henderson and Dyer who do seem quite similar or or doing, you know, performing similar roles. There's a lot of good attacking players in the team, but I, I don't really, I still don't really understand why it is that England are playing three at the back now. I mean, what's the what's the reason for for doing this? I think it's in part because lots of teams play it, and probably also because he wants to play. He wants to play two strikers and two attacking midfielders, and you can't really do that in a in a back with a back four. Hmm. Um, I think there. I mean, it, fundamentally, I think one of the issues with this team is all the like all the best players in the team are attacking players, mm. and I think that I mean England never really get attacked that much in international football, so we don't have to, their defense doesn't get tested out. 
but I do worry that like under any pressure from a, you know whether it's Belgium or perhaps Colombia in the last 16 or Poland in the last 16 like when England actually has to do some defending I think they, there's a danger they'll be they'll be very open I mean Southgate obviously wants to play, you know he obviously wants to defend high up the pitch and push everyone forward mm. but I mean it will be interesting to see how that fares against teams who are quicker and cleverer than us. Yeah. The other thing that uh, came up today, well, a few different things came up, but one of the um, questions was, you know, would you have liked to have seen more England fans here? Uh, I mean, they had they had already spoken about how they think, um, this is Kane and Southgate had spoken about how they're kind of, feel like they're sort of reconnecting with the fans. But I kind of get the opposite sense, actually, with the England national team. I mean, I've seen them at a few tournaments and when I think of like the mania that surrounded them in 2004 and 2006, it seems as though they've really fallen a long way in terms of the excitement that they generate among uh, people who maybe used to be England fans. I mean, the only England fan that I've seen today in Volgograd was a guy wearing an Algeria shirt who said he doesn't really care how England do. Uh, so, so it's kind of. I mean, what 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 do you think is is happening there? Is it is it a team that have fans lost interest in the national team in England? Is it a case that all they need to do is maybe win two matches and it will go straight back to, to kind of national mania or, or is, is something kind of been lost? I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why why England fans aren't literally out here in, in the Volgograd. It's, I mean, it's not a very easy place to get to. Is I it? was looking at that. I mean, there was lots of them. There was 5,000 in Manaus. There's like 15,000 in Bloemfontein. I mean, they're like not they're more difficult to get to. Than... In terms of England fans, this will probably be the worst supported tournament since the 80s I would imagine mm. since, since since Mexico um, which is which I mean and Southgate, Southgate referred to okay there's been a lot of stories I mean he's he's been qu- kind of quite vocal about this like he thinks that you know Russia's got an un- unfair bad press uh, and, and he was saying people have been put off by these types of stories but I mean it, can it just be that well uh, there's clearly a, a real disincentive if you see what see what, what happened in in France two years ago it, it's going to cost you thousands of pounds. You have to take time off work, and you're going to get your head kicked in by a load of you know Russians with um, with like you know MMA outfits, um, and so that that's part of it. The the, the logistics are part of it. Um, and I mean, in terms of the in terms of like the wider disconnect, I think that's been coming for a while. Uh, a lot of the people you know out in France for the Euros were it was it was clearly sort of a, a piss up with some football tacked on. Mm. Um, this, I guess, being more of a footbally sort of tournament. The idea of, of coming out and, and and going to that sacrifice to watch England, to watch you know Jack Butlin pass it out to Harry Maguire to pass it across to to, to you know Kyle Walker to pass it back to, to the goalkeeper. It's um it doesn't fill doesn't fill you with a huge amount of um you know excitement. Yeah, my sort of very anecdotal impression from the England fans on my plane is that they're slightly older than normal England fans, like they're more in their 30s and 40s than their 20s. You know, for obvious reasons, England England playing in Europe, and I think, sorry, in Western Europe, and this has been the problem with you know, the fan trouble that we saw in Amsterdam, the Amsterdam friendly, the Dortmund friendly, as well as at Euro 2016, is that you know, the, if you can get there for 100 quid, you're going to get lots of younger lads who are going to go and have 10 pints and offer out locals, whereas... Mm. If you, you know, the, it's much harder to come here, and if you offer out any policeman, you might end up in a prison camp. <laughs> <laughs> so I do think we'll see like the more kind of like, like anarchy completist England fans out here. Yeah, but yeah, you're sure, right; they yeah, have hardly. Sure, they've right. only. I think they're expecting between three and five thousand fans. Yeah, uh, which is ama- like you say, two and a half thousand. I thought. Yeah, so. which is an amazingly low number given the context. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jack Redbrook, uh, John Lou, best of luck to your boys tomorrow.
<laughs> and uh, thanks very much for talking to us about, about all that, Tony. Timbuktu. They're all pampered. We haven't got leaders. They're all just headphones. Inside and outside, blue they don't communicate. You can't get anything out of them. That's why we're no good. They're all just headphones. They don't communicate on the pitch. They don't communicate off the pitch. They're all pampered. Oh, we're getting ready for Russia. Good luck. And then after that, we'll be building a team for Timbuktu. Timbuktu. How have England reacted to that equaliser? Perfectly. Um, no panic. Calm straight down. Continue dominating the game, playing and staying in Iceland's hearts. It's been the perfect response. You'd think that no problem. The only thing that they have got is the big boy up front, Sigurdsson, who really, Sigthorsson. Oh, my oh, word. Oh. Tell us, talk us through that, Steve. I think we know what's happened. Oh, just say, Sigthorsson. <laughs> just cannot. Well, it doesn't sound like there's a massive travelling army of England supporters there, Ken, to cheer on Gareth Southgate's boys, but... Not to worry. I mean, they've had that in other tournaments and it hasn't necessarily benefited them, so I'm sure so they'll be okay. Less people to boo them. <laughs> less people to boo them after a disappointing nil-nil draw. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I saw barely any England fans uh, at all yesterday. Now, maybe they were only arriving. I mean, I was, I was around in the afternoon, sort of going around looking for, looking for some action. Um, went and looked at the FIFA Fan Fest, which was a sad sight. Uh, I stood on a, a kind of a bank overlooking it and saw that there was like, zero people in there i mean when i say zero i mean not a soul <laughs> not a sinner <laughs> apart from a couple of people in the volunteer teachers that you can recognize from a distance um but maybe it was that the england fans just haven't sort of arrived hadn't arrived at that stage i'm sure there was there was a few uh, who eventually turned up i mean i think they're expecting two and a half thousand um which is not not a whole lot um I admit, you know, it's not really a kind of a, a town where loads of people can turn up and drink. It's just not, it's not built for that. It's not that type of place. I mean, just you, you walk around and you'd walk for ages without coming across a bar or a restaurant. It's just not that type of a town. It's like a big spread out kind of low intensity town um, with big, low, uh, sort of lots of apartment blocks and trees in the middle and, you know, people selling fruit on the side of the street. You know, like I saw one place which was a cafe, but actually it was a car. Like it, it was a car with a sign on the roof saying cafe. And there was like a guy sitting on a deck chair next to the boot, like selling stuff out of the boot. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's more, I don't think this place has the infrastructure to cope with a huge invasion of uh, England fans, all of whom are going to drink, you know, on average 10 pints. Like there just aren't that many pints here. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have worked. So maybe it's just as well that, that it didn't happen. Although, you know, again, today, maybe I'll go out today and, and discover that, that, the, uh, that the England fans have arrived and it's, and it's more like the usual sort of... Uh, usual Let's sort all of talk answer. about What I can say is that there's no... It, it certainly didn't seem in any sense dangerous. I wasn't walking around going, oh, I hope nobody mistakes me for an England fan. It was just a, a nice, friendly, you know, normal city on a sleepy Sunday, which happens to have a, 
a vast amount of <clears throat> hulking <clears throat> World War II uh, memorials and, uh, and monuments to remind you that you are walking around on the site of uh, one of history's uh, deadliest battles. Brazil and Argentina both made their bow at the weekend and both of them struggled really. Tim Vickery, a one-all draw for Brazil against Switzerland last night. A fairly sluggish-looking Neymar. Not great. No, I mean, uh, in, in terms of Neymar, um, there are there are things that don't change and things that do. And the thing that can change is his physical condition. Uh, the, the coach was saying before the, uh, the the tournament that he's going to oscillate. He's not 100%. He's still, he's still coming back. He'll have great moments and not so great moments. And, and we saw that. But what doesn't change is some of the excesses of his, of his temperament. Uh, and uh, the, the the constant. I mean, there's a, there's a big thing in Brazil about how how the Swiss were out to foul him, and and they were terrified by him. <laughs> and, and, and there were uh, he was on the end of uh, of of a number of fouls. But you know, to compare this with the kind of treatment that say the likes of Maradona had in their day is uh, is, is is fairly ludicrous, really. I mean, it was. Uh, um, and quite often he's looking for the fouls. And I was worried by this right in the first five minutes. I thought Brazil were, were, were terrific for 20 minutes until they took the lead. I thought they were really, really good. But something that worried me right at the start, him retreating, uh, Neymar retreating on the ball and uh, doing a little showboating and trying to draw a foul. And that's usually what he when, when he doesn't play best. Uh, and uh, so often, you know, the options that he chooses, when... When he he goes looking for fouls, the emotional temperature of the game rises, and the 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 opposition get irritated with these kind of aerodynamic dives that he does. He then gets irritated by the fact that he's uh, that that he's not getting the fouls that he should, and he ends up choosing the wrong options. Having said that, even within that, he can still do something brilliant. And I thought it was brilliant the free kick that he came up with deep in stoppage time when everyone's expecting him to try and play the hero and go 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 for the direct shot at goal and instead the little dink into the uh, in, in, into the penalty area uh, catches the the, uh, the swiss defense i think a little bit by surprise and brazil came very close to snatching a winner so neymar is 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 so often uh, a mixed bag but i think there are plenty of other things to talk about with the brazil performance besides just focusing on him go on then you know i always love to focus on neymar tim but but educate mm-hmm. us on what else was going on that you saw there well, the thing that I that I was absolutely astonished by that we haven't seen in in the the two years in which Chichi has been in charge is the the that uh, the, they retreated so deep after taking the lead, and it made no sense whatsoever. You're up against an opponent with a slow centre forward, so you can you can keep your line high. I and mean, the last thing you want to do is is uh, is invite them deep, invite them into your own area. I know Brazil have faith. That their own counterattack can win the game, and also, you know, when you, you the, your central midfield three includes Felipe Coutinho and Paulinho, you don't want to play in your own half. You know, Coutinho isn't really a genuine midfielder. He does his work, his best work, in the last 30, 35 yards of of the field. Um, when he gets, when he's dragged into his own half, then some of his defensive deficiencies are exposed. And Paulinho, and the best thing that Paulinho does by far is when he's bombing forward into the opposing penalty area, which he did very well, I think, for the first 20 minutes. Every time Brazil had the ball, they got men in the box, and uh, and uh, he was he was always arriving, and he very nearly got the um, got, got the first goal. So if you've got these two in your midfield three, 
and you're up against a side with no attacking pace. It makes no sense whatsoever to drop back. And the coach, Chichi, he said after the game, yeah, we, we retreated too much. But they did it for so long. So why wasn't this changed? Um, even, even at half time. So uh, maybe we'll just we'll just scratch this one off and put it down to first night nerves. But that was very strange because that was something we haven't seen from this team in the last two years. I don't know how surprised you were by Argentina's difficulties in breaking Iceland down. I must say, not especially surprised in my case because uh, the, we've seen how organised Iceland can be. We can see how difficult they are to break down. And a team at international level who wants to play that way is always going to cause... Uh, opponents uh, trouble especially opponents who seem to be reliant on a tactic of giving it to their best player and hoping he can conjure something up in, in, well isn't that the truth you know plan A for Argentina is give the ball to Messi and hope plan B is also give the ball to Messi and hope there doesn't seem to be anything else um, from an Argentina point of view I think you're only su- uh, my surprise is that so many people have been surprised because th- that's been what it's been like there's no coherent idea from Argentina at all um it, the World Cup is always like time speeded up, and they may find one during during the course of uh, of the campaign. But they start off, you know, the, the coach Sampaoli, he has one idea of play, uh, and he's clearly come, I think, correctly to the conclusion that he doesn't have the resources to play that way. And that idea is the very high line and a high press and 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 so on, and he, he just doesn't have the defensive pace to do it. Indeed, I mean, that, that defence, that gives you a heart attack every time, doesn't it? And every time, it didn't really happen in the second half, but in the first half, every time Iceland managed to come forward, you know, you, you're thinking that, uh, that, that, that they've got a goal here. But you, you couldn't really see any coherent idea from Argentina at all. And usually from, from uh, sides coached by Sampaoli, you're looking for, for two against one situations down the, uh, down, down the flanks. And Argentina just tried to funnel everything down the middle. You know, Messi trying to throw, thread the ball in, in through through the eye of a needle exactly where that Iceland defensive block was uh, was so strong. Uh, and, uh, you know, looking at, uh, at Croatia next up, I think, you know, Argentina are, are in a spot of bother. The moment of truth has arrived for them very early. All right, Tim, brilliant stuff. Thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs> oh my god Soccer is popular uh, I got locked in a toilet Well there's now a door handle up my side of the door So I started beating up the door But nobody came The next people that I saw Were engaged in a pretty hectic street brawl one of them kicked him very hard in the belly. Yes, we are only four days into this thing, and already we've had some nice World Cup moments of our own on the daily podcast. I think probably moment of the tournament as a whole still goes to Cristiano Ronaldo, but Ken watching those Russians fighting, it's up there for me. That's all I'm going to say. I'll agree to disagree, on. Go on. No, well, listen, you have your opinion, I have mine. It's absolutely fine, you know? I don't understand what your opinion is. Your opinion is that Ken watching a Russian street brawl is actually a greater World Cup moment than Cristiano Ronaldo well listen that it takes all kinds <laughs> to a make big, a world it's a big call. you know what I mean yeah you got to hold it against me like not at all no I like it if you want to join that fun and get it, get this kind of thing right through the week and every week of the tournament get on to secondcaptains.com and sign up now you just pay your fiver a month on a month by month basis so there's no minimum 12 month sign up or anything like that just come and enjoy the rest of the World Cup with us and we'll take it from there a word for Hannes Halderson the Iceland goalkeeper who I mentioned at the top of the programme he saves his messy penalty, then boasts a little bit afterwards. I like the way he grabbed the moment. I did my homework. 
says Hanez after being asked, how did you save this penalty? Simple as that. I looked at a lot of penalties by Messi. I also looked at how I had been behaving in the last penalties. So I tried to get into their mindset, how they would be thinking about me. That's the kind of attention to detail, Murph, yeah. that this man has also taken into his career as a film director. Mm. You know? Sorry, before we move yeah. on to his, uh, his yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, film directing, uh, I love that idea that he's basically saying Lionel Messi bottled it against me. That basically, <laughs> that I psyched out, not just that I saved his penalty, but I also psyched him out, got in his head, and that's that. Well, those were the headlines that he got in Leo Messi's head. I don't know if he was really having a pop. <laughs> the great Messi book. I mean, I, 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 see, this is a part of what I love about the World Cup as well. Mm-hmm. That the guys, the journeymen, oftentimes do totally take their opportunity to just go, yeah, you ain't so great, are you? You're like the best players of their generation. You call him a journeyman, Murph. Maybe that's only because he has had half an eye in his film directing career Maybe up until so. this point. Only in the last so. few years has he focused on playing football. Only this guy does direct TV and film and, and ads and all this kind of stuff. He has come out of his semi-retirement in that game to direct a really brilliant Coke ad for um, Icelandic TV. This was sent on by Daniel Smith. We, we can tweet a link on, you can have a look. But I just like the idea that he... Iceland's goalkeeper doubles in this directing in this spare time. The Viking clap is the centerpiece of the Admir, if that's the only thing you have to deal with. I know you're not a massive fan, mm. but no, it is there. Icelanders the are absolutely fine. You go for it. That's your thing. It's like the... Oh, everyone else. The jumping on the bandwagon on the of bandwagon. the football world. Yeah, that's what I'm not so happy about. Ken, last word in England. I know you don't particularly like score predictions, so I'm going to ask you a different question. Who is England's key man going to be tonight and through the tournament? So essentially, if X has a big tournament, England will go a long way. Who is X? Harry Kane. No doubt about that. No. Um, if, if Harry Kane plays well, England uh, can, can do well. Um, he's a player who can win games on his own. Uh, at the World Cup, that can count for a lot. Uh, I mean, look at the Spain-Portugal game the other night. Um, everyone talks about Ronaldo, but what about Diego Costa in that game as well? I mean, that, that goal to get Spain back into the game was uh, like, <laughs> I mean, Diego Costa against the world. You know what I mean? Um, that can make such a difference because just scoring a goal makes such a difference to a team. It can change a team's whole mindset for a, whole, for a tournament. You know, it can flick a switch. Harry Kane against Iceland. I mean, I was talking about it to, to Jonathan uh, and Jack in our in our piece earlier, but like when a, when a key player has such a meltdown, there's just nothing you can do. It's it's like it's it's over. I mean, you're you're all your plans are are just out the window. You you need you cannot have your best players turning in the worst performance of their life for for whatever reason for whatever whatever was wrong with Harry Kane uh, that night in Nice. Um, whereas if, you, if we see the Harry Kane that we've seen a lot of the time uh, in the Premier League this season for Tottenham, I mean, this, this, this strong and confident player slamming in goals from, from all angles, then you know the, every, every team in the World Cup is going to be scared of that. Um, so, so he's the guy they need to produce. I mean, there's other players. I mean, Deli Ali as well. I mean, is, which Deli Ali is going to turn up? I mean, he's a magnificent player. He's had a very inconsistent season. Sterling, you know, Sterling has been has been amazing all season for Manchester City. Can he do that for England? Now, these are all the questions. I mean, it's, it is very, they are an interesting team at the moment. Because like as Southgate was saying, he thinks it's a different team from the one that people think it is. But the question is whether they can show that or whether we're going to see somehow this group of players who are quite different from the sort of players that represented England before, who've grown up in a different time, with different influences, watching different types of football on TV and imitating 
different styles of play from from the English footballers of the past who, who were just steeped in the traditional culture. Can they show that at the World Cup or will they, under the pressure of, oh, no, you know, we've, oh, this is a bit difficult. Oh, you know, we're not really looking forward to the reaction if, if this result doesn't go well. Will they somehow just revert back to this archetypal English tournament failure mode? Like, is that, can, will that happen? If that does happen, it will be kind of amazing. <laughs> it would be like, what, what is going on? Like, how, why is this, why is that, why is this sort of etched into the soul of English football that it always emerges, no matter what the group of players, no matter what the era, it always returns to this. Well, they, they be, shouldn't have been playing be so darts amazing. with it. Yeah, they shouldn't have been playing darts with the journalists, Ken, I mean, wasting that's their obvious. time. That's come on. Like, I mean, it's, it's basically World Cup preparation 101. No darts with media scum. Well, Jack, Jack and, and John were telling me that um, that no no journalist has scored above twenty six ah, points. Come on. Uh, I mean, it's it's. I think it's a three dart challenge. Like that's they're not playing like a whole a whole game of darts. Like, I mean, Jesus, it's like a three dart challenge, uh, and I believe twenty six is the top score that journalists have made. And and obviously every player has beaten every journalist. <laughs> well, that's good that, has been, that has been paired up so far. Something to do with uh, superior uh, motor neuron skills, <laughs> uh, coordination, so, all that kind of stuff. So, um, right. so you know, who knows? Maybe they'll stick around long enough in the tournament for journalists to win a three-dart challenge. Brilliant stuff again today, Ken. I'm going to do the end of show thank yous now, guys. Just let me lead it. We've been bungling these okay. since Ken's gone away. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Carol. And thanks very much for listening. Well done, guys. <laughs> we finally nailed it. It's going it. to be a good week. Oh, I can feel it on the World Enjoy Service. Enjoy the England game. Everybody, we'll talk to you again on the World Service tomorrow. Take care. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.